0: I promise. Um, I'm going to be referencing a lot of scripture. I'm not just making stuff up, okay? Um, But I I want to ask this question before we get to this passage, which is a very rich image of Christ and his second coming. You understand Advent, right, is is a season where you're supposed to both look back at Christ's first coming and look forward with longing to his second coming. In our series and in our treatment of advent this year we're we're going to be leaning heavily on looking at images of christ in his second coming okay and so that's why we're in revelation this morning Um, but i want to ask this question before we get to the passage Um, because we talk about looking forward to christ's coming i think there's a subconscious question that all of us ask that's in the back of our minds whether we want to admit it or not that oftentimes kind of, it dictates how we act and how we live as Christians. Um, it's a question of uncertainty, and it's this. Is he really coming? Is he really coming again? Are you honest enough with yourself to admit that you asked that question? That you ask that question with a sincere kind of like, I'm just not so sure. You know, when I was in college, um we had something called the professor rule. Do you guys know the professor rule? 15 minutes. Thank you. The first group didn't know it at all. First fit so yeah, if it's a TA teaching your class, you give them maybe 10 um, you know, maybe 5. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, they don't deserve that respect. But a professor, right, you give them 15 minutes. Um now you can make an argument that Jesus is the, the king of the universe, and so therefore we give him as much time as he needs, right? And, and certainly scripture tells us that we should because he's not slow in coming. He's patient, right, waiting on people to repent. It's not that he's, uh, you know, tardy, right? But that's how it feels, right? That's how it feels often. We're just kind of like stuck here, waiting on him coming, and it's been over 2,000 years at this point, and we're looking at the clock, and it's kind of like, isn't it time to go back to the dorm room and play video games? And honestly, that's how a lot of us live, right? We've found our hope in other things. We're no longer looking with longing towards that. We're looking towards the next closest good thing that we can grab a hold of the next thing that might be kind of like bringing some relief right at least for some period of time it's not something that ultimately satisfies but it's right here it's tangible we can feel it like like the lottery (laughs) right the lottery was really big recently a lot of people bought lottery tickets Because they could hope in that. It was tangible. It was right here. Look, there's this big amount of money. But it's not something that's sure or certain or lasting. Even if you win the lottery, you can't take it with you, as they say. But all of us have our lotteries, our things that we've kind of grasped onto in the absence of Christ's return, where rather than kind of like looking towards that, we kind of fix our longing on that. I have all sorts of things. All sorts of things. I I can't wait until I get this thing for Christmas. I can't wait until my kids get to the age where they can do this on their own and I don't have to do it for them. All sorts of things like that, right? And those are good things. Those are good things. But in the midst of those, I think oftentimes we lose sight of the real hope that we have in Christ's coming again. And is he coming? If we look at God's word... God's word is kind of obsessed with telling you he's coming. In, in fact, if, if you actually do some sort of quantifying of it, as some scholars have done, if you look in the Bible, you'll find around 2,000 different specific references to Jesus Christ's second coming. Here's just to put that into perspective. It outnumbers references to his first coming, something like eight to one. Eight to one. Think about how obsessed you are with little baby Jesus and celebrating Christmas. You should be eight times as obsessed with Jesus coming back. Okay? In the Old Testament, 17 out of 39 books predicted. It's not a New Testament hope. It's an Old Testament hope too. In the New Testament, 23 out of 29 discuss it explicitly. Roughly 70% of New Testament chapters brush up against it or deal with it directly. And it comes up in roughly one in every 30 verses of the Bible. It's all over it. And literally everyone in the Bible is talking about it. Starting with God the Father, right in Genesis 3, right after the fall, Jesus' second coming is predicted. He will come and crush the head of the serpent. You see that in Revelation. It's predicted right there at the beginning by God the Father himself. But not just God the Father, the prophets, it's all they can talk about. Daniel and Isaiah are particularly interested in it. Jesus himself talks about it, most explicitly in the Olivet Discourse, where he spells out, I'm coming back, and this is what it's going to be like. Angels at the beginning of Acts proclaim it, he's coming again. The apostles in the epistles are obsessed with it. It's all over the epistles. They extensively talk about him coming back in the hope that we have. And, of course, Revelation is all about it. All about it. So if it's all that the biblical authors can talk about, why is it something that we so rarely talk about? Why is it something that we so rarely hope in? And we need to talk about hope for just a second. We like to talk about hope as though it pertains to just things like the lottery. Like, I hope I win the lottery. It's a one in 10 million chance, but gosh, I hope I win the lottery. When we talk about hoping in Christ's return, we're not talking about that kind of hope. There's hope and there's hope. Actually, if you look it up in the dictionary definition, that first definition, the one that we commonly use for things like the lottery, gosh, I hope I win. There's a distant chance. I doubt it, But gosh, wouldn't it be nice kind of hope is the first definition. The second one is more, it labels, the dictionary labels it archaic. But it is a longing for something that you have rooted your identity in and are certain of. So when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about something that is uncertain. Listen to a couple of these verses. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not saying, hey, you know, roll the dice, play the lottery. It's saying this is something that is certain. Build your life on it. Do you see? Paul talks about it as well. As something that is sure and certain in romans 5 and 8 paul speaks of our hope that does not disappoint that's 5 5 doesn't disappoint it's sure he points out that god has already given the spirit god has given you a down payment that's how you know it's sure you've got the holy spirit and in romans 8 he talks about how he's already sent his son to die for us if he did that will he not also give us all things and I'm sure that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. He's coming back. It's certain. Okay? So when the Bible talks about hope and it talks about us hoping in, in the re- uh, return of Christ, it's not talking about a lottery ticket. Right? Not in the sense that it just might happen. It's, talk- it's talking about something that is so beautiful, so majestic, and so certain. It's the only thing you want to build your life on. Okay? And he didn't just send us roughly 2,000 reminders in his words so that if we're reading it regularly, it punches us in the face from time to time. He also gave us rich pictures. He put us in a time machine and gave us imagery of what it's actually going to look like. And that is what this series, this Advent, is going to be. We're looking at the pictures of Christ's return. You know, in the olden days, people used to give each other a locket. You know what a locket is, kids? (laughs) What's a locket? Yeah. (laughs) Very helpful. It's this, right? (laughs) It's a necklace, right, that you wear, right? And you open it up, and inside is what? Pictures. It's usually shaped like a heart, right? Uh, Symbolic of something that you have put your whole self into, right? Like this is, here's my heart, and inside is my My picture of my family, for example, right? People that I love, right? But did you know that the original lockets, do you know why it's called a locket? Anybody know? Someone's doing this. That's not true. That's what I thought originally too, is that, oh, you lock them, you know, to make sure that they're sure and secure. Yeah, someone's doing this. That's correct. Lockets originally were given with a picture And behind the picture somewhere, you cut off a lock of your hair and put it inside. And the idea there was, I'm giving you a piece of myself in addition to a picture of myself so that I will go with you everywhere you go and you will remember how special you are to me. Jesus didn't just give us love letters that said, hey, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. He gave us a locket with the Holy Spirit sent to interpret these images that he gives us of himself returning. So it's like we can at any time when we read scripture and look at these images, put on the VR HD goggles of scripture and see the future. See the future of the beauty of him returning. And that is what we're going to do this Advent, which starts this Sunday because we're Presbyterian. (laughs) All right, so I have two points for this sermon in addition to the one that I just did. But before I get to those points, let's read the passage. But this is how I want to read the passage, differently than we've done it in the past. Normally, we all read it together, but today I just want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine, to envision, to listen to the details of the image of our Lord Jesus returning. Close your eyes and listen to God's word. This is Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce angry anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are coming again. Thank you that that is not some sort of distant, small chance for a future reality, but it is certain. Thank you for giving us images to encourage us as we sojourn here in the world. Lord, Help this this morning to fix our eyes on you, to be encouraged uh, by what this image presents to us. Lord, help us to see it. Send your spirit today specifically to enliven this image. May it be real to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we already did one point, so congratulations, we're a third of the way there. Last two points, here they are. Are you ready? Do we really want him? That's point one. Second point, do we really want him? That's the third point. So the second point is, do we really want him? Third point is, do we really want him? Notice the difference in emphasis. The first point, we're emphasizing him. Do we really want him? And then secondly, the emphasis is on really. Do we really (laughs) want him? Okay, do you see the difference? All right, so let's look at the first one. Do we really want him? Do we really want Jesus specifically? You know, um, if you are familiar with Jesus only through popular culture, (laughs) right, he's kind of silly, especially in this country. Jesus has been grabbed hold of by almost every kind of comedic kind of platform and often kind of enters into the world of comedy in kind of funny ways. Um, which is often incredibly inappropriate and funny, right? But but our culture has kind of made Jesus into a bobblehead doll, right? He's kind of cool. Oftentimes, he's presented in, in shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, Robot Chicken, right? He pops up in South Park even, <laughs> right? And And he's presented as like someone who's generally beneficent, like he's good. It's not like they're, Uh, usually portraying jesus as evil um, but he's kind of he's kind of like silly in how he uses his powers he's kind of just kicking around doing kind of fun stuff and 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 it leaves you wondering if that's your impression of jesus and whether you acknowledge it or not popular culture has an influence on us and how we think about things so even those of us who are reading scripture regularly i think these things pop into our minds And influence us. And when you think about that in terms of Jesus' second coming, it's kind of like, you know, all these kind of like shows are kind of depicting him coming back. And while it seems fun and kind of hilarious, is it really all that good? Like, is it really going to deliver on the things that Scripture promises, like defeating all of our enemies, like sin, death, and Satan? Is he really going to do that, or is he just coming to crack a few jokes and bobble his head? Obviously, Scripture pushes back against that image of Christ. And this picture that we have just read, this image that we have just seen, is a different Jesus, not a Jesus who's joking around, who's just here to crack a few jokes and go back up and kick it with the Father for eternity, right? He's coming, and he means business. You know, there's a huge emphasis in our culture on justice, on justice. And one question I think that our culture wants to ask is, is, is Jesus man enough to actually deliver on justice? Is he actually going to do all of these things that like, he's, he's saying he's going to do? Or is he kind of wimpy and just going to kind of show up and crack a few jokes and go up and kick it with the Father and be a bobblehead and allow that to just sail on by? The picture here answers that question definitively. Notice that this passage is obsessed with the name Of Jesus did you notice that as we were going through this there were a lot of names Jesus presents a lot of ID right he shows up and he's like let me show you my ID except notice that the first piece of ID (laughs) that he shows is I ain't showing you my ID (laughs) did you notice that he has a name written that only he knows nobody else knows it now think about this our culture is obsessed with secret agents we love secret agents. Who's your favorite secret agent? James Bond, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. I don't even know his name. Uh, Jason Bourne, right? Secret agents, these government operatives. What's one thing they all have in common? We don't know their real names, or at least their enemies don't know their real names. Same is true of Batman, right? Batman wears a, a mask so that nobody knows his real name. Why? Because if you know his name, then you have power over him. You could get to his, you know, his close relatives, His ward, Dick Grayson, right? Or (laughs) whomever is close to Batman, right? Jesus has a name that only he knows. Nobody has the goods on him. He's a secret agent coming with that kind of withheld so that nobody can use that against him. No one can evoke his name. You know, another common illustration of this is like your mom, right? Has your mom ever evoked your name? James Morrison Sutton Jr., what have you done, right? Nobody talks that way to Jesus because nobody knows his name. Only he knows his name. Do you see? So he's coming with this kind of like incomprehensible power, something that is withheld from everyone else. He's so secretive in terms of who he is that you can't get the goods on him. So that's the first piece of ID that he delivers is you don't get to see my ID. You know, right? You don't, you don't need to see his identification. <laughs> yeah, right? That's what he does. Notice also there's this image of him having fiery eyes. Now, I think that that's an image of, you know, he's coming to judge and to wage war. That's a part of it. But I also think that his fire eyes are kind of an image of how much he knows. They pierce darkness. There's nothing you can hide from his eyes. Right? He comes, and he sees. You don't get dirt on him, but guess what? He's got all the dirt on you. (laughs) You see that image? Okay. Notice, too, the other name that's given, his spoken name, Word of God. Right? He has a name called Word of God. Now, here's the image I want you to get with this. Right? When he presents that ID, he's telling you he's a wizard. Right? He's not only a secret agent, he's also a wizard. Here's what I mean. God, in the Bible, has powerful words. Like way more powerful than Harry Potter, or Gandalf, or whomever, right? When he speaks, whatever he says happens. That's the idea behind magic words, you you understand? Right, you learn the spell and then it does what you want. Well, God didn't have to learn any spells, it's just his words. He speaks his words and it happens word of god is essentially equivalent with it's gonna do it's gonna do whatever i tell it to do right and the image is is his mouth has a sword right and so jesus coming to conquer he didn't need a sword in his hands all he's got to be like is be vanquished <laughs> you see it's the same as let there be light right he's a wizard he's a secret agent wizard do you see <laughs> He's not just coming as a bobblehead with no power. He's coming with incomprehensible power, the kind of power that created the entire universe and can certainly uncreate it. Okay? This is a powerful image. Thirdly, notice the third kind of piece of ID that he gives. Um, What's his his name Uh, that's written on his robe and on his thigh? King of Kings. The image here that I always think of, because I can't think of the book of Revelation without thinking about the movie Tombstone, because the movie Tombstone is actually about Revelation. If you've never really watched it closely, pay attention. Um, it's a literary presentation using the story of Wyatt Earp to present the story of Revelation. It's amazing as a literary thing to study that. But when Wyatt Earp sh- shows up, right, after the OK Corral happens, after the the uh, kind of like... The cowboys come and kind of murder a bunch of his family, right? Initially, he shows up in Tombstone. He's just a regular guy, and he's being a regular guy. But then that happens, and what does he do? He has a history as a lawman. They all have, like, badges that represent kind of, like, their authority locally. Well, he goes to the federal government. He gets, he gets basically commissioned as a U.S. marshal. And so he shows up after that happens, And he's got one of the cowboys, and he's got him at gunpoint. And he's telling him, you go warn everybody else. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. That's what he says. And then he pulls back his shirt, and on his robe, (laughs) right, is a badge that says U.S. Marshal. He says, yeah, you see that? I'm authorized. I'm authorized to come at you. Do you see? What this is saying is Jesus is authorized. God has given him a badge that says, King of Kings. All you guys, you have your little authority? Oh, no. He's got many crowns and a badge that says, King of Kings. I outrank you. I am the law. (laughs) That's what that says. And it's on his robe and on his thigh. Why his thigh? Well, in the ancient times, that's where you carried your sword, right? It represents... it's it's representative of of the authority that he has to exercise power and judgment and wrath. He's not a bobblehead doll. He's a secret agent wizard U.S. marshal. Do you see? And his name, his nickname, the fourth name is is right at the beginning, Faithful and True. Faithful and True. We're going to come back to that name, but essentially this represents how like committed he is to what he's come to do okay we're going to come back to that and and the illustration of it which is uh is his robe but i I also want to look before we move on from this question of do we really want him uh because we do he's more than a bobblehead doll he's the one that can actually conquer our enemies i want to look at his ride he shows up on a white horse This is in stark juxtaposition to how he arrived in his triumphal entry here on earth. Do you remember? He shows up riding a donkey. The donkey, historically, like you look at the prophets, right? The prophets predicted Jesus would ride in on a donkey. That's why he did it, so he could proclaim he was the Messiah. It was a very regal thing to do in one regard. Um, But the symbolism of a donkey specifically was a symbol of peace. The prophets love to do stuff like this. They take war imagery, and then they take agricultural imagery, and they say agricultural imagery represents peace. War imagery represents war. So, for example, they will beat their swords into plowshares. Sometimes the Bible says they'll beat their plowshares into swords, <laughs> right? It, it's, it symbolizes a shift, right, back and forth between war imagery and peace imagery. So Jesus shows up on a donkey, right? Why? Because he comes to us in peace. But when he comes to conquer our enemies, he doesn't come on a donkey. He comes on a white horse. Right? I can't help but think of Shrek. Right? And three, right? When <laughs> you know, when he when when they get, you know, transformed by the fairy godmother juice or whatever. And and Eddie Murphy's like, I'm a stallion, <laughs> right? That's the picture of Jesus. When he comes for his enemies, he's not just coming, you know, peacefully. He's not coming as a wimp. He's he's coming as a conquering king. And the image of a horse, I think that's lost on us, right? Because it's like, you know, we don't fight wars on horses anymore. And I think about um, when I was at NC State, I was having lunch at the uh, student union, and the (coughs) army was recruiting. So they flew in an Apache helicopter to dirt track right there by the student union, and they were letting kids like climb on it and saying, don't you want to commit your life to the military? <clears throat> and they were like, cool, yes, sign me up. <laughs> well, I, was, I didn't know that was happening. I was just eating dinner at the student union, and I guess it was time for the Apache to go back home. But it just rose up off of dirt track, and it was facing me. I don't know if you've ever seen the front of an Apache helicopter. There's more missiles on that thing and guns. It's just the scariest thing you've ever seen. It was just like, I was like, I give up. <laughs> that's the picture here. Jesus is coming on a white horse with an entourage, with an army, okay? Do you see? So do we want him? The answer is yes. He's your guy. Like, if you're going into a battle with something that's bigger than you, that you can't conquer, that's going to be hard, he's your man. I'm going to be transparent for a minute. I was talking at a staff meeting earlier this week about just how hard preaching this sermon is for me. On Monday, everybody was like, hey, how can we pray for you? I'm like, pray for this Sunday because I, I'm normally a hopeful person. And this is meant to be a hopeful sermon series. But I'm going to tell you, I think it was demonic attack in some ways, but wave after wave of just hard washed onto me. This week. And it was really hard for me on Monday to think about how I was going to talk about the hope we have in Christ's coming. But here's the truth God, in His sovereignty, appointed me to preach this sermon, not to you, but to me. Because as I look through His ID and the symbolic representation of who Christ is, do you see He has the authority, the power, the dominion to conquer all of the heart? Every hard and challenging and terrible thing that we face, Jesus comes with a plan to defeat it. So I don't know what your heart is. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't stand up to the Apache helicopter war secret agent wizard U.S. Marshal that is coming in the person of Christ. And that is our hope. So, second point do we really want him? Think back to that Apache helicopter thing. I was a little nervous. And you read Revelation, if you read Revelation, you probably get a little nervous. Just to give you some of the context of this story of Jesus coming right after this, it starts talking about birds like feasting on flesh. Um, There's a white throne of judgment coming up. Um, You know, it talks about him in this passage trampling the winepress of the anger of God. Think about that for a minute and the symbolism there. There's a lot of blood and gore in this picture. And it's hard not to read all of that and kind of go, wait a minute, who's he coming for? Do we really want him to come? Or do we really, are we sure? And, and there's scary scary imagery, right? He's riding a white horse, but what color is his robe? It's covered in blood, right? This is a bloody picture. Do we really want this king coming? He's going to trample the winepress of God. He's got blood all over his robes. This is scary. And and there is many interpretations to Revelation as you know, and some people do look at his bloody robes and they say this is symbolic of the people he's going to conquer, Jesus. I don't believe that's the right interpretation. Here's why. Cuz the battle hasn't happened yet in 19. He's coming straight from a feast. And then he's going to conquer his enemies. So where'd the blood come from? Well, he's not just a king. He's also a priest, right? In the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us. Jesus often in Revelation is depicted in both ways that contrast his incredible power, but also his incredible sacrifice. Think about the lamb who was slain, who is talked about also as the lion of Judah jesus comes with blood on his robes and it's his blood the priests sprinkled themselves with blood from the sacrifice to make it appropriate for them to go before god and to make them sanctified for warfare so that they could go fight righteously so jesus is coming as a priest with blood on his robes his blood and notice who's who's behind him there's an army in white linen some people think this is angels might be angels might be might be part angels might be part human right but he's just had a feast with the church with the saints so the context suggests that it's not just angels and white and linen right both of those are are pictures of purity and cleanliness the Egyptians actually used white linen for mummification because they believed that it covered them uh, in purity for the afterlife. They referred to it as woven moonlight. It was the garb that you wanted to wear if you wanted to present yourself pure and clean. Jesus' robes are red, but his army's robes are white. And here's the thing that I want you to see. Two things. One, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. They have no armor, no weapons just white linen and white horses. And they're riding with him, behind him. Why? Because he's going to fight for them. They don't need armor. You see? They don't need armor. They're coming behind their great champion. And notice, too, uh, notice, too, that their perspective is from behind. They're coming from behind him. He's not coming for them. They're fighting with him. I talked about tombstone. I'll talk about my favorite Western Um, My favorite Western is Silverado. Anybody ever seen Silverado? Silverado is a movie. It's an older Western. um, But there are these four guys, these four heroes in the story that experience various kinds of injustice. And at the end of the film, they're about to ride into the town, into Silverado, and they ride up alongside of each other. And, of course, they don't say a word. You know why? Because they're cowboys. They don't say a word. But they know where they're going, and they know what they're going to do. I want you to think about that for a minute the perspective that we have of Jesus is not a scary one because we are behind him we ride up alongside of him right and we're going into war with him knowing that he is fighting on our behalf I want you to just picture that for a minute how glorious that will be all of the saints that you know right I can't wait to be riding up on my white horse next to Matt freaking Newkirk, <laughs> who studied Greek and goes and raises up church planters in Japan, right? That's going to be our moment when, when, when Jesus comes back. Who are you going to be riding alongside of? Think about that perspective. It's different than the perspective of Christ's enemies who are in front of Him, who see the sword coming out of His mouth because it's coming for them. That's those enemies are the beast, the nations right? That great serpent, the devil, the antichrist. These are our enemies, brothers and sisters. The point is, that's not us, right? All that violent imagery is reserved for our enemies, for the enemies of Christ. And we have, it'd have to be a whole nother sermon to get into who those people are and what all that represents. But the point is, it's not you. You're behind him because he has sacrificed himself. His blood has made you perfectly clean. You get to be in the army. You get to be a part of the hero's ride, not because you're a hero. You have all sorts of kind of like problems and things that you get wrong and you mess up on a daily basis. But guess what? He's so heroic, he's got enough hero for all of us. And we ride with him. What a beautiful picture. Some friends of mine um, this past month said something pretty severe to me I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this but I did something they didn't like and uh, I've been thinking about whether I should have done it or not I'm not really sure but they said to me you know one day we'll all face the judge of the universe (laughs) what (laughs) anybody ever said something like that to you Like the implications of that are pretty clear like you should think about that you should think about what you've done and i did there i don't know still don't know (sighs) (sighs) but i do know this my favorite hymn is oh quickly come dread judge of all nobody else likes that hymn and so, you know, as I went through kind of like processing this being told to me, at first I was kind of like, I can't believe they said that. It's so hurtful and spiritually manipulative. And then I thought, you know what? They just reminded me that the great judge is coming. And I thought about that song. Here's how the lyrics go. Oh, quickly come, dread judge of all. For awful though thine advent be, you're coming. How, as awful as that is. as for awful though thine advent be, all shadows from the truth will fall. And falsehood die inside of thee quickly come for doubt and fear like clouds dissolve when you are near I don't know if I should have done what they think I shouldn't have done but you know what all the shadows are going to fade away when Jesus comes back and I'll know and if I was wrong he paid for it and if I was right great doesn't matter (laughs) right and my friends who said this to me and I will ride together behind Jesus to conquer sin death and Satan Quickly come. My friends, I think, meant that to be a warning, but I'm like, man, I'm so encouraged. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> do we really want him? Yes. Do we really want him? Yes. Do we really think about it in conclusion? I um I've developed this weird rhythm. I get up almost every morning to watch the sunrise. I feel weird telling you about that um, because, I mean, like it's literally almost every morning, like sometimes like 5 a.m., to watch the sun come up. I go to the Boylan Street Bridge, if you ever want to join me. It's usually where I am, sometimes Dick's Park, but usually Boylan Street Bridge. You know why? Because it's an incredible view of the sunrise. And here's how this came about. I started painting. You remember I've told you about that? I started painting a while ago. And oil painting a sunrise is something that I wanted to master. So I get up to look at sunrises to try and figure out where the colors all go. And you know what? Every sunrise is different. <laughs> and I've learned some things about where colors go, but I've also learned that, you know, the sunrise can look however the sunrise wants to look. <laughs> however God, you know, wants it to look. It's never going to like conform to some sort of pattern. It's unique every single time, and I'm obsessed with it. I get up and I take videos, time lapses, and I put them to music. I have no less than, like, 20 videos of that. No kidding. It's weird. My wife thinks it's unhealthy. I think. I was at a party recently and somebody was asking me, do you really do that? And I'm like, yeah, I really do it. And I started thinking about, like, why do I really do that? It was because of the painting thing. But then also, like, I remember we were in Hawaii and I was getting up every morning to watch sunrises in Hawaii because, you know, Hawaii. Like, sunrises are beautiful in Hawaii. And there's a place in Maui called Haleakala. It's this sacred mountain to the native um, Hawaiians. And, and, like, you go up to the top of it, it's high enough, you get over the clouds. And you can watch the sunrise from above, right? Which, which is incredible. And I got home after that trip, and I, that part of this pattern, I was like, you know what? there are sunrises in Raleigh. I can do this every single day and I haven't stopped. But, but you know what, Boyan Street Bridge isn't high enough. It's not like Haleakala, right? You're just watching the sunrises from below. And, and I have kind of developed this pattern where it's become this devotional thing where I'm like waiting for the sunrise and I never know when it's gonna come up based on the clouds. You know, there's a, there's a time on my app, but it comes up at different times and looks differently. It's always kind of a surprise kind of like Jesus is coming. And I sit there in the freezing cold and I wait for it and I'm like, why is the sun not up? It's supposed to be up now. It's late or it's early. I never know. And I've thought about, man, this is so much like Christ coming. The sun comes and it breaks through the clouds and every morning I'm like reminded, today could be the day. This could be it. He's coming. This could be the day. Every single day. And also, I've thought about that perspective. And you know the problem with Raleigh is nowhere high enough to kind of get that perspective. So you know what I did? <laughs> I bought a drone. <laughs> American ingenuity. <laughs> or actually, I think it's made in China. But anyway. <laughs> I can get up above the clouds and watch the sunrise and have the same perspective that we have in this picture. And I think, man, how great will it be to be on a white horse, the proverbial Apache helicopter, (laughs) alongside of Christ, alongside of all of you, and be watching as we go into battle and all of our enemies, our sin, death, disease, pain, sorrow crushed by our secret agent, wizard, U.S. Marshal, faithful and true Savior, King. Brothers and sisters, application of this sermon is this. Will you spend this Advent looking to the coming Christ? Will you gaze upon the images of Him that He's given you? And will you allow that to enrapture your soul with the truth about who God is. Maranatha, Christ is coming. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're coming. We thank you that you've given us pictures to remind us and not just statements. We thank you for the statements though too. And Lord, we just pray that during this time you would fix our gaze upon you, that our hope truly would be built upon you and nothing else. Lord, you are the only sure foundation of hope. Um, We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.